This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Hello, 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 and welcome to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm Maroki Tong, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Andre Prue. Hello. And if you haven't heard of the show before, we're here to bring you all the skinny on the eats and drinks of GTA and beyond. Today, we are joined by the family uh, pet friend, Henry. Yeah, I think uh, when I say hello, he thinks that I'm calling to him and... Uh, yeah, the we have a dog in the studio today, so apologies. This is, I guess, take th- full disclosure, take three of trying to get it without the barking dog. <laughs> well, Andre, it may be the middle of January already, but for me, it's still Happy New Year because Lunar New Year begins today. That's exciting. Yes, so maybe I start all my New Year's resolutions now. <laughs> While the rest of us have firmly abandoned ours, um, except for me. I, I've still held on to my dry ish january i know i said that i'll be honest i opened a bottle of champagne with my very patient wife um as we welcomed my baby to the world a couple weeks ago and uh she was jonesing for some bubbles after nearly a year without any any alcohol and she was so disciplined during the during the pregnancy that uh i slightly broke my dry january for that I think that is a perfect occasion to break dry January. And if you stick around, we'll be talking a little bit more about non-alcoholic beverages later on on Tasting Together. But one of the things I was thinking about recently, um, so as you know, I was in Arizona last week and I went out for breakfast with my parents and it was, you know, breakfast is not a food I normally indulge on, like going out and having that big, hearty American breakfast. The bacon and eggs. The bacon and eggs. And I was sitting and looking at my menu. I was ready to order, you know, maybe some big omelet with some home fries and maybe a side of bacon. And the menu had all the calories listed beside it. Let me guess. It was an omelet, I'm guessing, with what, sausage or bacon in it? Um, It was like on the side. Okay. Uh, cheese in the omelet? Yes. Home fries on the side? Yeah. Probably 1,500 to 1,800 calories. Something like that. So let's just say I went for the veggie smash up uh, (laughs) instead. Now, Andre, like, do you think that we need to be like maybe not just overall in January? And I know we talked about New Year's resolutions and, you know, people shouldn't be so, uh, I guess, like obsessed with diet culture. But we do need to be conscientious about our health and what we put in our bodies. Um, at least my personal opinion. No, if you want to live like a long, healthy life. I, I, I think I'm trying to not put the cart before the horse on this because I know exactly where this segment is going. But like on, on one hand, we've talked about a little bit about New Year's resolutions a couple shows ago about not restricting yourself and not doing the extreme diet because it's not sustainable. But I think when we look at the other side and the cause of why people are making unhealthy choices, I just think that in general as Canadians and as North Americans, We do a pretty poor job at actually educating people on what is healthy, what isn't healthy, but also about things like what is a calorie. Like, I think for a lot of people, when we talked about how many calories were in your breakfast, we said 1,500 to 1,800. I don't know if most people in the car right now know whether or not that's a lot for a meal or not. I remember back in the day when they always say, you know, like the average person should consume 2000 calories a day. And it was kind of this benchmark for a long time. Um, I'm a five foot one woman. And I can tell you that I do not need 2000 calories a day unless I am doing a lot of athletic activities. It's I'm just simply not the body size for that. Averages are a really strange thing. You could be, you know, someone who consumes higher than average. My partner is five, six, but he's an avid athlete and he 
easily consumes 3000 plus calories a day and he's a very fit human. And so I, you know, that's like the loosest kind of benchmark. And I don't want to turn this into a health segment. I guess the, the thing I'm alluding to here is just, do we think, you know, restaurants need to share more information about what's in their food? Do you think people would make a more calorie conscious decision? If so, I clearly did. I don't know if someone looks at the hamburger and goes, I don't care a thousand calories a day. Today's my cheat day. Let's just go for it. Um, I am someone where I appreciate when I'm in a restaurant that does have the calorie count listed. But I think one of the problems we face is that the restaurants that are forced to list calories as prescribed by Ontario law, this is a law that's been in place for quite a few years now, are generally not places that are offering healthy options in the first place or, or super healthy options. I mean, we, we could debate whether or not a hamburger is healthy or unhealthy. I mean, it's protein. Yeah, it's high in sodium, but I mean, it does give your body a lot of stuff that you need. But sitting and eating 10 hamburgers a day every day, you know, a la Super Size Me documentary, we know is not a healthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a reason why uh, fast food chains usually are the ones who are obligated to disclose their information because they are a very calorie dense meal. And it's called fast food, which means you can get it again and again and again. And it's not like going out to a nice restaurant and indulging in something with a lot of butter in it once in the blue moon. Yeah. Um... No, that's a very good point. And I'm also just like thinking about the obligations on restaurants. Like if I decide to open, I don't know, a greasy spoon in downtown Toronto where I do serve the breakfast diner food, do I have the time effort and what does that do to my overhead to, let's say, hire someone to count the calories on my meals for me so that I can post them? Um, You know, as we also, as we've said in previous shows that restaurants have been given a really short end of the stick, have really been given a tough time especially post-pandemic, do we really want to add another layer of complexity? And is it just, should we really not be putting the onus on customers to have a better idea of what it is they're eating and have an idea of whether or not they're making those healthy choices themselves as opposed to putting it on the restaurants to tell them, hey, this foie gras covered steak is not going to be the most calorie wise choice for you, but it's going to be delicious. Like I was going to say, but so delicious. Well, I remember when I traveled Japan, they have calories listed on everything. Like even if you go to the supermarket and you're buying fruit, mm-hmm. they'll be like peach and they'll list some calories on it. And, you know, I think part of it now, it's been many, many years since I've been to Japan, but I know that, you know, a lot of Japanese people and a lot of Asian people, there's a lot of pressure to kind of adhere to a very certain physical appearance for a long time. Do you think the pressure is higher than in North America or Europe? Oh, absolutely. And I I won't dive into those experiences today, but I know like the pressure for, um, I can't speak for men, but obviously it applies to women and men. I can say for as women, um, a lot of Asian women are very expected to adhere to very specific um, physical appearances. And I think a lot of the calorie counting came from that. But I guess maybe it comes down to education because you don't want someone to, you know, say, I'm not going to eat some fruit and I'm not going to eat some vegetables because I don't want to add calories to my overall daily intake. That's not necessarily the message we want people to take away either, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I mean, that once again, comes down to knowledge, right? Is taking a look at something like, you know, the aforementioned hamburger where, yeah, the sodium content is quite high. And that's something you need to be mindful of when you go to a restaurant and eat a hamburger. But you're also getting protein that your body needs. You're getting fat that your, pro- that your body needs, depending on your toppings. If you do get uh, you know, a, a nice big fresh slice of tomato and lettuce that's also giving your body things that you need. Granted, not the quantities that you probably could and should be eating it, but it's just like understanding that the calorie is not the be all and end all of what 
makes an informed, healthy choice. And as you alluded to earlier, not everyone needs that, as it says in the corner of every fast food menu in Ontario, that, you know, the average person needs 2000 calories a day. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, it really just helps you make a little bit more of an informed um, decision for yourself, right? Like there's a lot of, I, I think a lot, I think about like Chinese baked goods. So, you know, when I used to go to Chinese bakery, you would get the like barbecue bun or the pineapple bun or the like cream bun. And you just sort of assume it's so many calories. Now, mm. when Loblaws bought TNT, they, I remember those buns suddenly all had a nutrition label slapped on them. And I got a rude awakening as to what went into those baked goods. And while I didn't love it because I realized I had to probably not eat as many of those you know sausage buns as I normally did it helped me realize that maybe I should reevaluate what I'm putting into my body if I want to maintain a certain degree of healthiness and you know if I decide to cheat then I decide to cheat but that's something Making that an I know. informed decision right yeah yeah because I think you know a lot of us you know there's a lot of hidden ingredients in food and sometimes we don't recognize maybe something is more than it really is but to completely shift gears when we come back from the break something really fascinating happened in the food world over the past week and i think given the arrival of the michelin guide in toronto that we've discussed in the past uh it may have implications that will open up some discussions about fine dining on this continent so stick around we're tasting together on 640 toronto Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Pru. I am joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. I know last week we talked a little bit about the restaurants in Toronto that closed over the past year. Places that we we're going to miss and just kind of unpacked why restaurants closed and got to the root of that. But did you see this news story that's sort of sent shockwaves through the food scene over the past couple of weeks about Rene Redzepi's restaurant Noma, which is consistently ranked as one of the best restaurants in the world, closing down, sort of citing that fine dining is dead and the model isn't sustainable and, you know, just kind of giving a bit of a sob story to why he's closing his doors, which is very much different from us talking about mom and pop shops retiring and closing up shops so they can enjoy their golden years. Perhaps I think it ties a little bit into the conversation of Momofuku pulling out of Toronto. Now, mm. obviously, Momofuku has other locations, whereas there's really only one Noma, quote unquote. Um, so it's a little bit different that way. But obviously, it's talking about something notable pulling out or closing as opposed to, you know, where we feel like there's almost like a reverence to those parts of the industries. They're like, they almost seem like monoliths and are a little bit indestructible in some ways. We always understand the plight of the small business and how they might have, you know, tough margins and that they may not have, you know, strong revenue streams. But you think of places that are booked every night, um, you know, that has a lot of prestige. It always feels shocking and it always yes. feels like that perhaps something was mismanaged. And I think um, a little bit too, I remember when uh, Mark McEwen, there were some articles that came out, I think it was like during the pandemic. So obviously the pandemic exacerbated some things, but they were, you know, I think he was um, at least several million in debt as well within his, you know, chain of, uh, oh, with his line 100%. of restaurants. And yeah, his, there were definitely a lot of restaurant and restaurant groups during the pandemic that were sitting on a house of cards where like mm -hmm. money come in, money go out. And those house of cards toppled during the pandemic. But 
I, I don't think when we're talking about Noma in particular, it's a pandemic related issue because I mean, the two things that were really kind of fascinating about the announcement of the restaurant closing were one, it wasn't a sudden closure. They're going to be closing at the end of 2024. It was already a place that was hard to get a seat to. It was a place that people were traveling to get to. To have someone like that who can be sold out from now until the end of 2024 say that the model isn't sustainable is something that raises an eyebrow for me. If your restaurant is booked till the end of 2024 and you say you're not making money, raise your prices. It's clear that there's the demand there. It's true. And, you know, that's why I said it comes a little bit down to me questioning their business savvy and one thing i've learned um not even not just the restaurant industry but i I came from the arts and 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 frankly not even just the arts in different areas of business is that i a lot of people operate in silos and very few people take a holistic view of their budgets and financials and a lot you know make a lot of uninformed choices there's a reason why you know, you, you kind of hear like, you know, criticism of startup culture when uh, a company receives startup money or, you know, venture capitalist money and suddenly the CEOs are driving around in $100,000 cars, yeah. which is really not where the funding should go. 100%. So this is where I wonder if there's mismanagement. And I think, I think the conversation is there is, um, you know, obviously there are people who have expressed sadness about the restaurant uh, closing, but, yes. and we've talked a lot about the industry changing. So you know, Andre, you and I know that one of the largest forces of labor within restaurants are often unpaid internships. I think that's something that a lot of people listening may not even be aware of is if you talk to a lot of really great chefs in Toronto, they'll use the term stage. And what stage up until recently has meant is like, you'll go. Uh, I, I have a friend who's a, a chef who did a stage at the French Laundry, which is a very prestigious restaurant in the Napa Valley. But he went down there on his own dime and basically worked there for two, three weeks unpaid just to have an opportunity to work with Thomas Keller, who's the the well-known chef there. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that happened at Noma. And I believe that the owner was quoted that, you know, if they were doing paid internships, it added about $50,000 of um, additional overhead, which made the restaurant unsustainable. That, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's like, that makes me beg the question of, well, then maybe you need to reevaluate your model as opposed to, you know, saying that it's unsustainable. There ha- like there are ways, there are ways. I've worked with numbers enough in my life and not to just say like, oh, I'm a financial expert or anything, but when there's a will, there's a way. Let, let me put it that oh, 100%. way. But I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people sitting in the car right now who would say, well, I did an unpaid internship when I was coming up in my engineering degree or my finance degree. Uh, If I did it, why can't these people do it? I mean, it's just one of these things where I think the times have changed so much that gap in wage between um, the way things are now in 2023 versus 1993 or 1973 have really changed that. um, I don't know if you're running a, a business. It's it's fair at this point to run your business assuming you're going to get free labor while you're charging $700 a head to sit in your restaurant. Well, let's think about it in the context of fine dining overall then. Do you think that this would have an impact or trickle down effect to how everyone sees other fine dining restaurants around the world? Um, I know it feels like there's a bit of a movement taking place in Toronto, but uh the reluctance to see major change by the industry has been really 
slow. Like I know he meant Begwani who ran Indian street food company over on Mount Pleasant in, um, in Midtown there was pioneering no tipping in his restaurant and also no tip outs in the restaurant so that everyone was paid uh, a fair wage. And I don't think that that really worked out. I mean, really good servers in Toronto can make a lot of money. I know I remember sitting um, at the pass in the chase, talking to a bartender who had a master's degree in psychology saying, I'm making way more money tending bar here than I would as a, an entry level psychologist, or it's just like it blew my mind. So, I mean, the, the culture is just fractured from top to bottom. And I think there's a lot of resistance to change. Do you think there's a generational element in that, you know, as you said, people might sit, think, well, I did my dues, so other people should do their dues too. But I also believe that, you know, just because you might have experienced something that was uh, possibly unfair or unjust for you to get through the industry. And I can say I have as a young Asian woman within certain industries that I've come up with. That doesn't necessarily mean that I would, I would want someone else coming after me to experience the same thing. I would like them to go through something easier. Not, you know, just because I might have gone through an unpaid internship at cost to myself that may have actually hindered me in other ways long term, whether it is debt or whether it is maybe not even landing the opportunity you thought you were going to land after having a so-called prestigious unpaid opportunity i would want the path of the next person to be easier and that's how you change an industry for the better um i'm not sure if it's generational but i I do know from my experience working in other industries outside of hospitality that there is definitely a split of people who are just like i went through it so you're gonna go through it versus the i went through it so i'm gonna make sure you don't have to go through it um, and I know from personal experience, it, it it just seems that the people who are trying to manufacture that major change are seeing positive results in terms of staff retention, in terms of better culture and in terms of productivity. So I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that looking at someone like Chef Red Zeppi saying that the model of fine dining isn't sustainable, that there is someone who will prove him wrong. Because I do love that style of eating and I do love that style of of cooking. And I would love to see it become more elevated in Toronto. But I would love to see a restauranter in Toronto really lead the way and build that sustainable culture from the ground up. Because there's a big opportunity here, in my opinion. But I I wonder how many people will miss Noma, I guess, and fine dining around the world in general, if it actually went. If you compare the populace of the world. All right. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to lighten things up a little bit. We've talked about my love of Lunar New Year, and it's been so much fun to talk to uh, Chef Nick Liu and Jean of Kiss My Pans. Uh, But now we're going to bring it local. We talked to my father-in-law about Polish Christmas Eve. You've got someone special coming on. Yes, Andre, I have a dear family friend who will be joining us to share some of the amazing traditions and food she had um, back home growing up and showing that there's really nothing like cooking with family. So stick around. That's coming up on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Brew, and I am joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And... Last week, we had a chance to really do a nice look at the Lunar New Year, but I thought 
and we thought it would be fun to do something similar to what we did at Christmas Eve, where I had my my Polish father-in-law on to talk about the holidays. Um, Maroki, you've got yes. someone joining us today here. Yes, and I feel like her experience likely will be more authentic than anything that I've ever experienced. Um, I thought about bringing on a direct family member, and I thought to myself, I feel like we probably all experienced the same thing as Canadian-born Chinese. Um, but I have someone who is extremely dear to me. I love her a lot. And she's going to be what I consider a sister-in-law in the next uh, couple of years, which, in, which is interesting because she's, she's Chinese. She's from China. She's been in North America for about 12 years now. She came over as an international student and uh, my fiance Eric's family more or less adopted her into the family and consider her a daughter. So there you go. My, my Jewish fiance has a Chinese sister and I'm super excited to welcome Chu Tong who's coming in from the States, uh, Chu Tong Ju. And she's an awesome lady. Like, she has a master's in public administration from Columbia. She's worked for the UN. She's way more cool than I'll ever be. So thanks for uh, joining us, Chutong. Uh, thank you so much for the kind introduction, Maroki. And um, hi, everyone. My name is Chutong. It's such a pleasure to be here today uh, to be part of this food talk. Yeah. yeah for sure, because... I bet that celebrating Lunar New Year in China is so different and frankly, so much better uh, when you were growing up over there. Am I correct? I'm not sure like better would be like the, uh, you know, the characterization that I would go for here. Um, but it definitely felt a lot more festive uh, when I was growing up in China than when, you know, I would celebrate it here uh, in the U.S., um, there are just like so many things and so many um, different elements that are not so easy to recreate in the U.S., but uh, I'm sure we'll also get deeper into uh, this later that as Chinese uh, in America or as any immigrant in a different context, you adapt, you you know, uh, inev inevitably adopt new traditions and incorporate some new um, elements into your celebrations. I'm just going to straight up say that I think it's better because my memory goes when I went to Hong Kong for during Chinese New Year, you just see line dances in the street all the time. Here, you basically have to go to like the one event in Chinatown and stand in a crowded mall with everyone and maybe get like the corner of the lion <laughs> as they're that dancing. Is, so. That is so true. Um, I remember just like seeing like lanterns and uh, lions dancings and dragons dancings everywhere like in my hometown when I was little. But of course, like in the US, if you want to see something like this, um, you inevitably have to go to Chinatown or like Flushing when I was in when I was in New York, um, yeah, like for the visibility part, sure. Yeah, definitely uh, back home, it's it's a lot better. You know, there's just something about the way North Americans celebrate where everything just feels so much more reserved because you describe that picture of like people dancing in the streets and it's just like, it really just feels unparalleled to here because like, yeah, we have the Santa Claus parade, but even that, it's just like you're getting a bunch of people civilly walking down the street at a very slow pace waving at people as opposed like it's, i think it's just missing a little bit of that 
like festive part of it. I mean, even think of like sporting events. If anyone's ever been to a soccer match in Europe, it puts all North American fans, whether you're a fan of hockey, football, or baseball, to shame compared to how people can really get into that celebratory mood. Well, I want to dive right into the celebrations part because you said, you know, there's different celebrations and there's a lot of it. And, you know, given that tasting together is about food or drink, what are some of like your favorite meal or foodie experiences you had growing up that maybe is a little bit hard to find here? I think part of the food and celebration, um, I think for me, the food that really brings me back to Chinese New Year is how like my mom, my grandmother and like my aunts um, and sometimes my dad will also help out. But that's, you know, sort of a different story. Um, will be like really busy in the kitchen and they will like just come out with 10 dishes, 12 dishes of all different varieties and the entire family will come together to like make dumplings together. And then my grandmother would do this cute little thing where she just like sneaks in nuts into selected amounts of dumplings. So it's also a game that whoever gets the, the dumplings with the nuts will be the lucky ones for the upcoming new year. And sometimes my grandmother would be like so biased towards me and she points out like whichever dumplings that she remembers <laughs> sticking the nuts to and she's like oh go pick that one i'm like okay i'm pretty sure that's that's the one that she remembers she uh it's the lucky one so um i don't know what your experience is like maroki i never got dumplings with nuts i i honestly can't tell you whether i grew up with a lot of like family cooking now maybe it's just because I just ate the food that was set in front of me. I certainly remember going to family members' house, and we still do. Like, whoever, you know, whatever aunts and uncles that we do have in Toronto, we would gather together and enjoy a home-cooked meal. But I also think a lot of us go out and experience it, whether it is having dim sum or going out to a banquet dinner and just have someone do it for us. And I'm not sure if just my memory's been clouded over the years or maybe just it's not as easy for everyone to gather together in homes, um, you know, in Toronto or... Right. But, it's it's yeah. like Christmas over there. Like you get the before and the after days off. The one question I have, if you are celebrating uh, Chinese New Year in China, are more people cooking at home and doing like fam a, a family cooked meal like that? Or is it something where you get it catered or you're going out to a restaurant to, um, to celebrate? Oh, I think it's definitely more common for people to do like home cooking and uh, an extended family gathering uh, at home for Chinese New Year. Uh, partially it's because um, like a lot of restaurants are closed for New Year's Eve. Uh, if I recall correctly, because I haven't been home for Chinese New Year for 10 years now. But um, but mostly, yeah, uh, if I recall correctly, it's it's home style and uh, uh, women would start preparing for dishes like weeks, months ahead of time. So yeah. What requires months of preparation? Like cured meats. Like my mom, uh, I remember my mom would literally go down to the markets to get the sausages. Uh, made and stuff like months beforehand and then she would hang them up um, on the windows um, so they can be uh, wind dried um, and you know they the first serving would always come on uh, New Year's Eve and then you can 
eat them throughout the year. Any particular dish that you miss from home around this time of year? Is it going to be like too greedy to say like everything? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I do not cook um, as well as my mom. So um, I can only make the very simple dishes uh, for myself and my friends. But yeah, I miss uh, what my mom would make for, for the family gatherings and for dinners. What would some of those dishes be? So I think one particular dish uh, is uh, stuffed pepper, where uh, you make sort of ground meats with uh, some sort of chunky vegetables uh, like zucchini or um, um, some sort of melon. Um, and then you mix in mushrooms and, and, pep like, and some more like spicy peppers. Um, and then you stuff that into like a bell pepper. And um, and then you saute that, so it kind of comes out with uh, like a wrinkled skin on the outside, but then like the inside is like really juicy and flavorful, um, and it's like supposed to have like really ominous uh, meanings as well. If you eat it on the New Year's, that you're going to be like loaded in the next year. So I I miss that, and I need it for this year. I I too would like to be loaded for this coming year. <laughs> yeah, try, try that dish. I can send you the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Well, Chutong, thank you very much for taking some time to share uh, your experience with Chinese New Year and talking a bit about the food and the traditions. And uh, hopefully you get a taste of home over uh, this holiday. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Well, after discussing all those festivities, we're going to do a big 180 um, coming up after the break where we're going to check in on Andre and how dry January is going for him and we're going to be tasting some non-alcoholic bevies together and see if they make the cut so stick around we'll see you soon on 640 Toronto Welcome back to Tasting Together Toronto's News Today's Talk 640 Toronto Welcome back to Tasting Together I'm your host Andre Prue. And it is past the halfway point of dry January. I'm sure everyone in the car is sick of hearing about it. But I felt this week it was important that we do a deep dive. I am joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. Hello. And we are joined, as always, by the Global Newsroom's anchor, crack anchor, smash anchor. I can't think of enough good adjectives from Danny Longo, who is always doing deep dives on the world of wine and spirits for us on tasting together last week you were at the ice wine festival i think you're still checking that out aren't you danny yes i'm going again this weekend as well so this week i actually uh, this is why the beginning of this segment is a lot of andre and not a lot of maroki and danny i gave danny and maroki some homework this week because i wanted some company in my dry january and i'm trying to convince other people to get on board um, I recently attended an event for a, a, a broader tasting of a lot of non-alcoholic wines or zero alcohol wines, but I actually got my hands on two, the uh, Bottega Sparkling Life Zero available at the LCBO for $9.95 and another product called Nozeco, so like Prosecco, but no. It says proudly vegan on the front label. It's also about $11 at the LCBO. Um, let's throw this to Maroki first. What did you think of the zero alcohol wine? Well, 
I think I've mentioned in the past that um, I I have found that in my journey of searching for non-alcoholic beverages, and it was a little bit more forefront in my mind over the last year because um, my my mother had some health issues where she couldn't drink alcohol and I still wanted her to kind of, you know, be able to have something to enjoy. And then I myself had a surgery and in preparation for the surgery, I couldn't drink for almost two weeks. And of course, after surgery as well. So I have found good non-alcoholic beer. I have found good non-alcoholic kind of spirits that, you know, or, or beverages that mimic spirits. And, you know, these days, non-alcoholic cocktails is there's so many ways to get creative with a mixed drink without putting alcohol in it. But wine has been one that I've always struggled with. And one of the big reasons is that it's often always too sweet. So I might as well be drinking juice. And if that's the case, let's not call it non-alcoholic wine. Let's just call it juice and and stop lying about what it really is. Okay, so that's the big so, that's the big picture, the big picture answer. Yes. I definitely want to unpack a few things of what you what you said. Um, with regards to the sweetness, because that definitely is something that we need to address. It is the not-so-large elephant in the room, because what you're saying is 100% true. Danny, you had the Bottega Sparkling Life and the Nozeko as well. What did you think? I did. Um, okay, so I I really enjoyed them both in different ways. Now, I think I enjoyed the Bottega Zero a little bit more. Interesting. But, mm. but what Moroki mentioned was... Um, absolutely true. Just so sweet. And yeah, why not call it juice? The interesting thing about both of them is that they're sparkling. So, I mean, as for appearances and everything like that, looks like a real bottle of wine, uh, bottle of wine, you know, when you pour it, it looks the right color, you know, everything. Um, but when you tasted it, the, the Bottega Zero, it was very, very sweet, but I, I didn't hate it. You know, like if, if someone gave me this at an event and I had it, I'd be like, oh, this is not bad. You know, it was like uh, enjoyable. As for the Nozeko, the Nozeko I found to be very tart, mm. um, very sour, almost like a like a Granny Smith, uh, like an unripened Granny Smith. So but yeah, the, I... but the right acidity, you know, like the right amount of bubbles and everything. But um yeah, I, I didn't hate either of them. I, I enjoyed them in different ways. You know, they're definitely not, you know, it's not a Prosecco, it's not a Rosé, but in its own way, it was enjoyable. So maybe what I should say is after I gave that big overview is kind of came back to the conclusion of what I thought of the wines too. And yes. so Danny, I was the opposite. I like the Nozeco more than the Bottega. Um, and one of the reasons why is that it was certainly drier. Now, that being said, um, when I looked up the stats on it, it's still 51 grams of residual sugar. So that's still quite sweet when you talk about what's dry wine versus what's sweet wine, right? Dry yeah, wine, dry wine is considered like 10 grams per 10 liter grams under. and less. And frankly, if you're someone who drinks a lot of wine, you'll probably notice sweetness at about 6 grams per liter residual mm -hmm. sugar. Yeah. Now, that being said, 51 grams of residual these days is a lot of kind of that off-dried German Riesling style. So, and with the bubbles, whenever I, you know, whenever wine is sparkling, I think that always helps in terms of offsetting the sweetness yeah, a little bit. I thought it was pretty well balanced. Yeah, I thought it was pretty well balanced. It has that, that really strong citrus note, many, many citrus notes, like lemon, lime. I, I think um, I might have even described it a little bit of like a five alive 
vibe yeah. uh, for those of us who drank those juice juice boxes as a kid. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I when I when I drink non-alcoholic beverages, I wanted to be similar or represent the thing I'm looking for. Ah, there we when go. When I'm enjoying put- the alcoholic beverage, you're putting the cart before the horse, Maroki. You totally ruined my next question so i'm gonna skip what? over you and go straight to danny and then we're gonna come back to you danny <laughs> do you yes. think that these two sparkling wines that we tasted for this week's segment did they taste like wine um, or were they like a reasonable fact i guess i mean i'm asking you a leading question but i mean Rook no, yeah. alluded to it or were they kind of like a reasonable facsimile of wine I would say a reasonable facsimile. I think the Noseco more so, because I, I thought the uh, the uh, Bottega was just very sweet, um, noticeably sweet, which made it a little more enjoyable um, in some ways. But if it's it, it was a lot of sugar, but I would say a reasonable, reasonably yes. All right, Maroki. I have a feeling everyone in the car already knows what your answer to the question is going to be. <laughs> but same question for you. And. Well, so I said, Nozeko, I think, represented a little bit more of what um, wine would be like for me. So in terms of being a facsimile, I would say that one. The thing with the thing with the Bottega Rosé is when you have wine that's sweet, there's still other things inside that makes you recognize it's still wine, right? Yep. Usually, notice, most notably, you know, being able to taste the alcohol or be able to taste the fermentation in it. And with the Bottega Rosé... That doesn't exist. Um, if I want to talk about like comparisons, like kombucha can be made very sweet, but it's a fermented beverage. And some people like to compare kombucha to alcohol because it has that fermented note in it. The Bottega Rosé doesn't really have any of that fermentedness that I would expect to taste when I'm drinking um, wine or alcohol. Now that brings that begs the question, though: is do we want non-alcoholic beverages to actually even try and represent alcohol in some ways because maybe for a a community that is exploring sobriety you might not necessarily want to be drinking something that is so close to the thing that you might be moving away from in your life i absolutely love the point that you just made um i went to the clear sips event and we played a clip from that off the top of the show last week uh where i got to taste um about two dozen non-alcoholic products and i was speaking with one of the sommeliers there who was behind the bar pouring cocktails with some non-alcoholic concoctions um and he said something that i i I actually feel the same way some same way because i've been saying it for a little while that i feel that the non-alcoholic movement is sort of like where vegan cooking was 20 25 years ago where you have some people starting to experiment with it a lot of it isn't very good and you know, I, I actually kind of feel the same way about a lot of vegan products as well, where it's just like, I know we want to make healthier choice, but there's so many delicious things you can do with vegan ingredients. Why do you want to try to make vegan bacon? Why do you want to try to make vegan beef? Because it's never going to taste quite like actual bacon or actual ground beef. And I think we're, we might be dealing with a little bit of the same situation here. And I think even for ethical and, you know, dealing in in um in a society right now where talking about addictions and mental health is something that's very front of center especially in 2023 mimicking alcohol is something that might be problematic um danny what do you think about that yeah absolutely that's absolutely true um one thing uh i would say i I have a couple of friends who are muslim and don't drink at all but you know 
not interested in drinking. You know, I, I don't think this is a product for someone like them. But at his wedding, he didn't serve alcohol. Um, but they did have, I think they had non, I think they had a bar. They did have, they did have a, uh, a pay bar or whatever you call it. Um, and they, um, they did have some non-alcoholic wine at the time. And this was quite a while ago and it was not very good. It was okay. not very good at all. Um, but I think, you know, if, if you have a product like this, you know, I think people could enjoy this at an event like that. Yeah, I, I think it comes back to what I was saying last week about not feeling like you're ordering off the kids' menu. Uh, right. Um, I think maybe to kick off next week, so just because we're out of time here, I would love to talk a little bit about why these non-alcoholic products are often sweet. There's a really good reason for it. So make sure you set your reminder for next week at 5 o'clock. On behalf of Danny and Andre, this is Maroki Tong. Thanks for tuning in on Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. We'll see you next week.